Well, if you were here with us last week, you know that my son uh, preached his first sermon ever here last week. And so on behalf of our family, let me say thank you uh, for how kind you were and how encouraging you were to him. Uh, I know that he was deeply encouraged when he left here. You may also remember if you were here that he opened up and said, hey, this is my first sermon. That's the bad news. Uh, The good news is you're probably going to get out early, right? Uh, Let me just let you in a little secret. This is not my first sermon. You're not going to get out early today, all right? I'm going to preach the full message I've got today. Well, one of the uh, most, this time of the year, uh, hotly debated theological uh, debates that goes on this time of the year is whether or not they will, in fact, serve pumpkin spice flavor in heaven, right? Like, that's a big, big deal. Uh, We do know this. We know there'll be egg salad served in hell. It's the worst food ever, right? Who looks at that? Who smells that and says, I'm hungry? Nobody. No Christian. But will there be, actually be uh, pumpkin spice in heaven? How many of you in the room are pumpkin spice lovers? Anybody pumpkin spice lovers? How many, how many haters in the room? Any pumpkin spice haters? Yes, yeah, so clearly we've got division in our church, so that's a matter of prayer there. Now let me show you my cards. Uh, I'm a pumpkin spice lover, but I actually don't drink coffee. I don't want to stump my growth, right? Still trying to get in the NBA. But, so what I do to make up for that, all those pumpkin flavors, do you know those Little cookies, the pumpkin cookies, they've got the icing on the middle that come out this time of the year. You know what I'm talking about? They've got the, just the right amount of diabetes in them. I love those. And so I eat those in the fall. I absolutely love those. But for me, uh, pumpkin spice season uh, kicks off another season, which I am a big fan of. I'm a big fan of scary movies. Uh, when those marathons come on in October, when it's Halloween, uh, 1 through 24, however many of those there are, like I'm watching all of them, Right? Friday the 13th, I'm in, uh, I think the greatest scary movie ever is Silence of the Lambs, and so I watched that, I've watched that a couple hundred times, I feel like, I love to be scared, I love for Tasha to hold me in her little arms when I'm scared, right? So I love the whole season, but the best part of all of this uh, is this is uh, the fall and it's kicking off and I love all those things, but maybe... The scariest movie that's ever been produced for some people was actually produced in 1973, and it was titled A Thief in the Night. Now, if you grew up in youth ministry uh, decades ago, you may have actually, in fact, sat in a youth group meeting and watched A Thief of the Night. Who in the room has actually seen the movie A Thief in the Night? Okay, several of you have. So A Thief in the Night, if you haven't seen it, uh, was uh, about the rapture. And all of a sudden, these people mysteriously uh, disappointed. Here's how I've described it to people. A Thief in the Night was the Left Behind series before Left Behind was cool. right? That was the precursor to all that's based on the same theological uh, timeline uh, for Thief in the Night. And so the reality is, uh, for lots of people, when they think about the return of Christ, when they think about the rapture of Jesus Christ, it's a lot like the Thief in the Night in the sense that it brings them Great concern, great angst, or great terror, as a matter of fact, when they think about the return of Jesus Christ and the rapture, right? So today, we're going to continue our series on 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, and we're going to hit head on some of the teaching on the return of Jesus and the rapture of the church. And so if you like prophecy, if you geek out about that, if you're a prophecy nerd, you've came to the right Sunday here. And so this is one of the most uh, debated passages in the entire New Testament as it relates to the rapture of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want you to understand on the front end. The word rapture is actually never used in the Bible. 
So the word rapture is never used in the Bible, but the concept is clearly taught uh, in the Scripture. So here, here's what I want you to think of, okay? So when you think of the rapture, I don't want you to think of a noun. I want you to think of a verb. When you think about the rapture of Jesus Christ, it's not a noun. It's a verb. It's not a thing that's identified, but something, that, an action that is described. Uh, it literally means to be caught up is what that means. And so just like there's uh, concerns uh, and questions about the return of Jesus Christ and the timing of all of that, here in the church in Thessalonica, there were concerns and questions all about the return of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's writing in verses 1 through 12 here in chapter 2 to kind of set the record straight because there had been some false teaching regarding the return of Jesus. And so therefore, they had a tremendous amount of anxiety and maybe even some of you has some anxiety when you think about Jesus Christ coming back. And so let's see what the scripture actually teaches today, all right? Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together, there's that concept, gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Let me pause right there. That phrase, son of destruction, is only used uh, here uh, to describe the Antichrist and also it's used to describe Judas Iscariot. Only two people in Scripture, okay? So he says, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan, and with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in other words, he was going to expose their hearts, where their hearts really are, in order that they may all be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, can we just pause here for a second degree? There's a lot going on here in 12 verses, is there not? There's a lot of things in there that you may read and go, what is that, and who does that mean, and how does it align with this, and there's just a lot of things there going on in 12 verses, and we, this morning, could easily get way down in the prophetic weeds and teach all these concepts and all these things that we would lose the bigger picture of what's taking place here. Uh, but So here's what I want to accomplish this morning. I want you to understand the bigger picture of what's happening in redemptive history, number one. But number two, I want you to have a basic understanding of some of the theological positions as it relates to the rapture and the return of Jesus Christ for his church. Okay? So if that sounds like a good plan, would you say amen? Good, because that's what I was going to do anyway. Okay? So... About a third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. About a third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. And this is certainly 
one of the key prophetic uh, passages. But if you don't understand anything else about this passage today, the technical aspects, I want you to understand the purpose of teaching on prophecy, uh, whether it's here, whether it's in the book of Revelation, I cannot tell you. How many people in the last several months have said, hey, what do you think about doing a series on Revelation? What do you think about this? Do you think we're near the end time? And what I tell them is this, we're closer than we were yesterday. That's all I know, right? But here's what I want you to understand. That when you teach on prophecy, uh, the goal is, is not to use these verses or the book of Revelation as some kind of secret decoder ring where you're discerning all these events. The goal of teaching on prophecy is to make sure that our hearts are ready when Jesus returns. That's the whole purpose. Warren Wearsby has an incredible statement. He says, the purpose of Bible prophecy is not for us to make a calendar, but to build character. And so he said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow your hearts here. When you think about the Lord's return, you're not, you're not using a secret Dakota ring. And, well, I know this is happening, and the temple's going to do this, and you know, they're buying red heifers, and what does that mean? Like all these kind of things. People say, have you seen this on the news, all this kind of stuff. Listen, that's not the purpose. The purpose is to grow our character, not to build a calendar for the end time events. And so Paul... Out of concern for the Thessalonian believers, they're, they're trying to stand firm in their faith. There's all kinds of false teachers. There's all kinds of affliction. And he said, hey, I'm going to teach you and remind you of the truths about the Lord's return. Not, not so you can discern the signs of the times, but so that it steadies your heart in the midst of all this affliction. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this a time in our country, in our culture, where as Christians, we need our hearts steadied and reminded that the Lord is returning? That's the purpose of this teaching. It's not for you to get all the signs and be looking at the news every day and the newspaper. I don't know if they even print newspapers anymore. I'm not sure. It's to steady our hearts, to grow our confidence that God is sovereignly in control of all of these events, even when the world around you feels like it's desperately spinning out of control. God literally has the whole world in his hands is what we're going to learn today. Not a single thing will play out that doesn't pass through his sovereign hands. And so that's why he's writing today, to steady their hearts, and the same should be accomplished uh, on us, because they're being deceived by false teachers. Now... Let me uh, give a word on false teachers. If someone disagrees with you on the timing of events, on the Lord's return, that doesn't mean they're a false teacher. Did you know that? If someone uh, disagrees, I, I would actually argue even the teaching on the rapture that, I, that I've got some very clear convictions about, and I'll share some of those today. Uh, listen, uh, even the teaching on the rapture, I wouldn't consider that a first-tier theological issue like the virgin birth or the deity of Christ. I wouldn't consider it a second-tier theological issue like eternal security. I would call it a third-tier or tertiary issue on the timing of the Lord's return. So people who love Jesus, have a high view of the Scriptures, can disagree on this issue and still actually like each other. Imagine that. A world where people disagree and still love each other. And so we're going to walk through this. There's a little, uh, little debate about some of these things, and I'll be honest about those points of debate. And as a matter of fact, you may have studied prophecy and I may tease through some of these things. You may say, you know what? I disagree a little bit with you on the teaching of the Lord's return. I want you to hear me clearly. That's totally fine with me. If you want to be wrong, that's your business, right? So we're going to walk through this, and you're going to hopefully learn some things. But let's not get bogged down in what's unclear or debatable 
to the point where we neglect what is incredibly clear. And what's clear in this passage regarding the return of Jesus is there are two events that will take place before Christ returns. We're going to see them right here uh, in this text, okay? So uh, we're going to look here and the primary truth we want to examine this morning. This is just a one-point message, all right? You may get to the end of it, may think there's no point, but there's just one point this morning I want to drill into you from the text, which is simply this, is that you should stay steady when things get worse. That the truths we're going to learn today, as redemptive history plays out, here's the bad news, uh, it's going to get worse, is what the Bible clearly teaches. But the good news is God is sovereignly in control, orchestrating all these redemptive events, and so that truth alone should steady our hearts. That every time you turn on the news or get on the internet or see some kind of crazy story and the world's you know, going to hell in a handbasket kind of a thing, that this whole thing's falling apart, these things, listen, let your heart be steadied by these truths today. That it's all playing out exactly under God's sovereign oversight. And so what we're going to find here in the first three verses is that there are two events that have to take place before the Lord's return. And uh, spoiler alert, on the surface, neither one sounds good, okay? So two events. Uh, the first thing is this, what I want you to see in the passage, is that false teaching and apostasy will increase. False teaching and apostasy will uh, increase. Uh, the Bible teaches clearly that as redemptive history marches forward towards the return of Jesus Christ, uh, there will be an increase in false teachers, the Bible teaches clearly there'll be an increase of people abandoning their faith. And so the Bible talks about an apostate. It's a person who once professed faith in Jesus Christ, but eventually denounces that faith. It's not a person who actually was saved and lost their salvation. It's a person who professed to know Christ, but their faith did not endure, so it exposes it was not genuine faith uh, in the first place. You say, where, where's that in the Bible? This is Judas Iscariot. Uh, this is Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, when he appeared to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, but, but what he got exposed is he just wanted to do all the magic tricks that they were doing in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is all the people that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read that text to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so these people have made a profession with their mouth, right? So he's describing, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, so obedience is the marker of genuine conversion, on that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? So what do they say? Those who profess me with their mouth, those who are involved in outward religious activity, what's he say? Verse 12, verse 23, and then I will declare them, I Listen, not I knew you and we, we, you know, we lost touch here. What's he say in verse 23? He says this, uh, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The late great Dr. Adrian Rogers used to have a saying about these truths. He would said the faith that fizzles before the finish line had a fatal flaw from the first. Say that ten times, right? And so the timeline of redemptive history is we're nearing the return of Jesus Christ. One of the things the Bible clearly teaches is there'll be an increase in false teaching. There'll be an increase in apostasy where people are denouncing their faith that they once professed openly in Jesus Christ. And again, a false teacher is not 
someone who disagrees with you on, on the timing of the Lord's return, or they, or they disagree with you on some preferences about dress codes or music or those things. And I haven't taught here in a while, so I don't know if you guys know my position when it comes to dress and clothes on church. You know, I just want to share that with you today as a word of encouragement, all right? When it comes to clothes in, in the church and the church gathers, here's what I tell people all the time, very clearly, unashamedly, we're for them. Amen? I think you should wear them, right? When it comes to music, uh, there's no such thing as Christian music. There's either lyrics that honor Jesus Christ or don't honor Jesus Christ. So a false teacher is not someone who disagrees with his preferences. A false teacher is someone who denies one of the teachings that form the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity. That if you removed one of them, you no longer would have Orthodox Christian faith. And so false teachers here were plaguing the church in Thessalonica. And what they were doing uh, is they were... Uh, teaching false teaching regarding the Lord's return. Specifically, what they were telling was, hey, Jesus, in fact, has already come, and you've been left behind, and, and now you're living in the last days when God's going to pour out his wrath on the church. And so they're clearly, they're clearly freaked out about that. And so the false teaching is going to increase, and that, that bothers people. Every now and then I'll get someone that sends me a video clip and says, hey, what do you think about this? This teacher, this preacher, something like that. I had someone keep me after church a couple weeks ago. I heard this taught on the radio and they said this and I don't think that's right. What do you think about that? And, and I'm bothered by that. What do you think about all these people sitting under all this you know, feel good kind of teaching, tickle your ears uh, kind of stuff that you know, just bothers us? I feel like the church is getting weaker. Listen, let me just lean in for a little bit here this morning. When false teachers increase, don't get freaked out. Actually, it should grow your confidence that things are playing out exactly the way the Lord said they would. It should grow our confidence that the Bible is, in fact, true. That all these things are playing out exactly how Scripture teaches they will play out. So don't let it freak you out. Let it grow your confidence. Uh, there'll be an increase in false teaching as Jesus and his return draw nearer. You say, where's that at in the Bible? Matthew 24, verses 9 through 13 says this. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased... The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now that last little phrase, what Jesus is teaching, is a doctrine known as perseverance of the saints. What that means is this. One of the aspects or characteristics of saving faith is it will always be enduring faith. And so when a person falls away and no longer professes Christ, that gives evidence they weren't saved in the first place. And so Jesus predicted this, but instead... Uh, growing more confidence that things are playing out, the, the Thessalonians, that they were, they were unnerved. Matter of fact, in the original language, it's what we would say, scared out of their minds. Look back at verses one through three. Just a couple things you should know about me because I'm gonna be here every week. Number one, I can talk really fast. Did you know that? Number two, I'll sweat for you, all right? I just get real, get into it. Verses one through three. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not only to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Literally, in the original language, we could translate that scared out of their minds is what that means. Scared out of their minds. Either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect 
that the day of the Lord has come. And so what these false teachers were teaching is, hey, it's already happened. You missed it. God's getting ready to pour his wrath out, and you're going to experience the wrath of God. And so in verse 3, he says, uh, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. He said, here's some things that have to happen unless the rebellion comes first and man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. What's the rebellion? A great falling away or apostasy. What's the son of destruction? It's the rise of the Antichrist. He said, so until these two things happen, the return of Christ will not happen where he comes to rule and reign and judge the earth. And that phrase in verse one, if you'd like to mark your Bibles up, he says, our being gathered together with him, that is the concept of a rapture of Jesus Christ. And remember, rapture is a verb, it's not a noun. There are three basic positions uh, concerning the rapture, all right? So before I get into this, I want you to raise your hands if you've got your big boy or big girl pants on today. Anybody have that on? All right, because I'm going to get in the deep end of the theological pool just here for a little bit, okay? So there's three basic positions concerning uh, the rapture of uh, Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly speaks about a time of great tribulation that will affect the whole earth. If you study the book of Revelation, sometimes people say, oh, the book of Revelation is so hard to understand. It's actually not. If you go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, it's uh, telling John, he says, hey, write the things which you have heard, the things that have happened, the things which are, the things that are playing out in the seven churches in Asia Minor, and the things which will be, which is chapter 4, all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. So that's all you know about the book of Revelation, that chapter 1, verse 19 shows you the breakdown of that. You're a Revelation scholar. Congratulations, all right? But starting in chapter 4, which is future, it's the tribulation playing out on the earth. And all those events that are playing out now, most Bible uh, conservative evangelical scholars teach that that tribulation period will be a period of seven years. And I'll show you why here in just a minute, okay? The debate is whether or not, there's no debate about a time of tribulation. Here's where the debate is. The debate is, will the church, the saved, us who belong to Jesus Christ, will they go through that period of tribulation? Will they be spared from it? Will they go through part of it? That's where the debate's at. It's not a debate about a rapture. It's not a debate about tribulation. The debate is, do we have to walk through uh, any of that? And so when he describes the, the rapture, the catching up, the being gathered together, uh, listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which, which I would argue 1 Thessalonians 4 is the strongest teaching in the entire New Testament as it relates to the concept of a rapture. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with a sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That, that phrase there, caught up, that is the idea of a rapture. It's a catching up. Remember, it's a verb. We'll be caught up, raptured out, is what that's describing, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, and so we will always be uh, with the Lord. Now, there's debate about the timing of that. Most evangelical, conservative Bible teaching scholars all agree that this will take place before the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, known as the millennium, which is described in Revelation chapter 20, which I believe is a literal future event. So the debate is not about will Christ come before that thousand-year reign of Christ. The debate is the timing 
of the rapture as it relates to the tribulation. Now, so let me give you the three positions here real quick, all right? Some folks would hold to what's known as a pre-tribulational rapture. That Christ is going to come and rapture out or a catching up or gathering up of his church before the seven years of wrath is poured out on the earth. That's a position of most Baptistic churches throughout church history. That's a position of Bible teachers like John MacArthur. That's a position of Dr. David Jeremiah, if you hear him teach on this. That's known as a pre-tribulational rapture. That before this seven-year period, the church will be raptured out or caught up to meet Jesus in the air, and they will not go through that time of tribulation. So that's called a pre-tribulational rapture. The second position is known as a mid-tribulational rapture. These are the people who can't make up their mind. Amen? They don't... The mid-trib says that, hey, the church is going to go through. So most teach that when you study the tribulation period, those seven years... That there is a decided point at the halfway point, the three and a half year mark, where it's no longer called the tribulation. It's now described as great tribulation. That it's going to go from bad to worse. Most, most everybody agrees with that. And so some people say that's what God has promised to spare the church from, from his full wrath and the great tribulation. So they'll be raptured out at the midway point. They're called mid-trib in their rapture view. That, that's uh, uh, James McDonald uh, would teach that position, a prominent Bible teacher. The third position is known as post-tribulation. And what's often misunderstood about this position is that they don't believe in rapture. That's not true. They just believe that it happens at the end of tribulation. And what happens, they think it's kind of one and the same. That the rapture happens, the catching up of the church to meet Jesus in the air. And then as soon as they meet Jesus in the air, immediately the church descends down the earth and Christ sets up his kingdom. Like, who, who teaches that, right? Where's that talk? John Piper would hold that view. Lots of prominent uh, evangelical Bible teaching people uh, would hold to that view, uh, that, that, that post-tribulational uh, view here, okay? So, now, if you're listening, say amen. Here's what I want you to understand the difference. The rapture is the catching up and meeting Christ in the air. The second coming is the descending and Christ setting up his kingdom on the earth. Rapture in the air, second coming on the earth. Rapture in the air, second coming on the earth. We're not sure what goes on in the middle depending on who you read or who you listen to, right? But the rapture is the catching up. The second coming is Christ on the earth. And that's what's known in this passage as the day of the Lord. It is a time of judgment that he's describing here. And what they were afraid is that we miss the rapture and the day of judgment is here and God's pouring out his wrath and we're going to experience his wrath is what the false teachers uh, were teaching there. Now, let me just kind of tip my cards here because I've learned over the years that when you're pastor or lead pastor, like, well, what do you think the right view is? I would hold to a pre-trib or mid-trib rapture. I believe that God has promised to spare his church from wrath. I believe you don't see the church mentioned uh, after Revelation chapter 3 in that time of tribulation. I would look at the teaching on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so I would hold to a pre-trib rapture, uh, maybe a mid-trib rapture. I understand God's sparing us from the great wrath uh, that happens, but I would not uh, hold to a post-trib rapture. And again, if you're here and you say, I disagree with you, I want you to hear me again with all humility. You are free to be wrong, all right? Now let's come up for some air and remind ourselves of the big picture. No matter where you land on the debatable issues of the 
timing of the Lord's return, the ultimate question is not the timing of his return. The question is, how do we live in light of his return? The fact that he's coming back, and we may be muddy a little bit on the the details of the timing or the timeline, that's not the important issue. The important issue is, how do we live in light of the fact that he is coming back? How do we prepare our hearts? How do we, as Warren Weir's begin, said we're not trying to build a calendar, we're trying to build a character. Now, what, what does that mean? Listen, here's what this means. Let me make this as plain as I can. If you've got very clear theology on the timing of the rapture, and you've got all this figured out, and you've got charts in your room, and you, you know, read the paper, you've got all these signs of the times, going that kind of thing, you, you know, you're very clear about this, and you know all these details, but yet you're unloving. You've missed the point of end times teaching. Because it's not to discern the signs of the times, it's to grow a heart for Jesus. And I don't know why this is, but over 21 years of ministry, some of the meanest people I've ever met in church have also been some of the most biblically literate people I've ever encountered. Because the Bible says knowledge not applied in love leads to pride. And so if you study these things, you get into prophecy, and it doesn't transform your character where the fruit of the Spirit's more consistently being displayed in your life, you've missed the point. It's not to discern the times or build a calendar. It's to transform our hearts, to build our character in light of the fact that he is coming back. So the point that Paul's making these believers and us today is that we should be steadied by these truths. That when the world looks around and sees all this upheaval going on, that they're not freaking out like these believers were, that our hearts should be steadied saying, listen, here's a couple things that have to happen, but at the end of the day, Christ is sovereign over all this. I don't have to worry about what's all going on in the world. I just have to ask myself, is my heart being transformed? Am I ready for the Lord to come back because my character is being transformed? Not because I've got all the timeline figured out uh, in there. And so they're deceived in thinking the day of the Lord was upon them, and they're, they're terrified. Look at verse 2. He says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And so he says, number one, uh, number one, he says, listen, let, let your hearts be steady before Christ returns. There will be a rise in false teaching. So these false teachers that have taught you, you missed it, don't get freaked out. He says, that's, that's going to happen. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you see all these things, people teaching things that you think are incorrect, or why they do that, why they say that, tickling people's ears. Listen, that's going to happen. The Bible predicts it. You see people denouncing their faith, that's going to happen. The Bible predicts it. Don't be shaken by that. Let your confidence in the truth of God's word increase, because it's playing out exactly as it said it would. So that should steady our hearts. The second thing, he says, not will there be a return of false teaching. He said, there will be an increase in false teaching. The second thing he teaches in the passage, event that has to take place, is the Antichrist will be revealed. I don't know if you know this, and some of you have been around longer than me. About every so often in world history, Someone has been pegged as the Antichrist. Have you realized that? I have found the last several years, it just so happens that the Antichrist is the person you didn't vote for. Have you noticed that? (laughs) 
I don't think they're anti-Christ. I think they are. Why? Because I didn't vote for them. <laughs> they thought it was Mussolini. They thought it was Hitler. They, I mean, just going on and on, the, all these kind of things. And so, the Bible says you, you won't have to wonder and guess because for Christ returns, the Antichrist will be revealed. For the people who are on the earth at that time, they'll, they'll, it'll be clear who this person is and who they're in charge and what's going on here. You don't have to speculate. He says, hey, before Christ returns, the Antichrist will be revealed. Look with me at verses 3 through 8. For that day will not come. What day? The day of judgment, the day of the return of Jesus Christ when he touches down the earth and sets up his kingdom. All right? So he's describing. Unless, so he says there's a conditional truth here, unless the rebellion comes first, that's a great falling away, an apostasy, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? <laughs> I love verse 5, because it's real subtle, but if you don't, you know, if you don't look at it, what he's, Paul's saying verse, verse 5 is this, I've already told you this once, Right? He says, I've already, I've already told you these things. Now, we're not sure where or how much or Scripture doesn't speak about that, but, but apparently at some point, there had already been some, he said, hey, I've already taught you about this, that this man of lawlessness will, will be made evident, this, these things will uh, play out this way. So when it comes to the, who the Antichrist is, the, the most important question is not who is he because he will be clearly revealed, Scripture teaches. And so rather, what, what type of person Will he be? Warren Wearsby drops some absolute gold in his commentary. He uses five words that describe the Antichrist, the type of person he will be. Now, if you've heard me teach before, you know that uh, I have a tendency to make fun of people, preachers who use alliterated outlines all the time. Uh, and the reason I do that is because I'm jealous. I can't, I can't find all those words, right? So Warren Wearsby uses five words here. They all start with P, alliterated, to describe the type of person the Antichrist uh, will be so five clarifying words if you want to write these down I'll talk it not as fast I'll just promise you that number one he'll be a peacemaker he'll be a powerful leader who will unify people in a time of great uh, chaos he'll promise a golden age of peace and prosperity uh, Wearsby says who, who Wearsby also holds to a pre-tribulational rapture Wearsby says this will be necessary to be a peacemaker because when the church has been raptured out chaos will ensue on the world all this upheaval from the rapture and he says this person will be a great peacemaker in a time of great chaos after the rapture of the church the second thing word he uses is he'll be a protector he makes a covenant with Israel and promises to protect her, and then eventually he breaks that covenant. He will seem as if he has finally solved the Middle East crisis. And we'll find out here in just a minute. He'll, third word is he'll be a peace breaker. And I'm going to get to the weeds a little bit here, all right? His covenant that he sets up with the Jews to take control of his temple, eventually what will happen is he will seat himself in the temple as the object of worship. This is what's known in the Bible as the abomination of desolation, which is described and prophesied three times in the book of Daniel. Let me read to you the book of Daniel. Some people argue this already happened in Rome when 
when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So I would hold to a futurist view that says this is yet to be fulfilled. The abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter 9 says this, verse 27, if you want to write the reference down. He will make a firm, the Antichrist, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. How many days are in a week? Not a trick question. How many days are in a week? How, long, how many years is the tribulation? That's a prophetic reference to a seven-year period. In the middle of the week, he'll, in the middle of the week, what's that? That's the three-and-a-half-year point. In the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. And so Wearsby's arguing, he says, hey, at the midway point of the seven years of tribulation, after this peace is set up, he'll break his covenant with Israel as a protector, set himself up as the object of worship, seat himself in the temple, thereby fulfilling Daniel chapter 9, the abomination of desolation. He'll say, I am the one who's worthy of your worship. Revelation 13 says he will demand the whole world worships him. And that's no surprise because what we learn about him is he's, Scripture says in this passage, he's energized by Satan himself. What did Satan want? That the whole universe would worship him. Remember what he said in the Old Testament? I will be like the Most High. Fourth word starts with P. I don't have a timer here. Liberty Township, I have a timer. So what that means is this, just preach to your heart's empty. Amen. He's a persecutor. What does that mean? That means anybody who does not take the mark of the beast as their sign of ultimate worship and dependence on him, anybody, they'll have to take the mark of the beast to exchange goods and commerce. He says they'll be killed for the refusal to take the mark of the beast. Now, I hold to a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. You ever hear people, you ever do this, where you go to check out somewhere, like, what's your total? You're like a 666. You're like, can you round up? <laughs> right? Listen, I don't think the church will be here during this time. We have to take the mark of the beast. So listen, if it's 666, give them exact change. It's okay, right? You're fine. But those who are left behind, he'll be a persecutor. He says, if you don't take this mark, pledging your ultimate allegiance to me, it will cost you your life. Now, listen to me. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, you think, hey, if all this happens, then, then I'll know it's real. Then I'll give my life to Jesus Christ. Let me just offer this challenge. If you won't live for him now, you won't die for him then. And so he'll be a persecutor. Here's the last P is a prisoner. This is the, this is the good news. The Antichrist will be on a short lease because the Bible says that when Christ returns, that he'll take the Antichrist and his associates and even Satan himself and cast them into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 says this. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast, that's the Antichrist, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. What's, what, what's all that theology? What, what's he saying here? Listen, here's all you need to know. Jesus wins. The gospel triumphs. Justice is served by a righteous, holy, and just God. And so he ultimately will be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so what should all this teaching on the end times do for us? It should steady our hearts. No matter how bad it gets here on the earth, and remember, they thought, they thought the day of wrath was upon them from Paul's teachers. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how scary the news is, here's how the story ends. Jesus wins. And so our heart should be steadied by these truths. Not anxious, steadied by these truths. Our confidence in the word of God should increase that it's all playing out exactly as he said. Now, is there anybody whose heart should be unsettled by these truths? Yes. Look at verse 10, then we're done. What's he say in verse 10? Those who are perishing because... They refused to love the truth and be saved. Friends, with everything in me this morning, I'm begging you, don't be a part of the crowd who refuses to love the truth and be saved. The good news of the gospel of grace is this, is that today you can receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So would you bow your heads this morning?